market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our, well, very, very special Sunday mailbag edition. And it wouldn't be a very special Sunday mailbag edition without the good doctor, Dr. Nirban Mahati. How are you, buddy? I'm very good. How are you? I'm very well, and I'm Scott Phillips. We're looking forward to a fun-filled mailbag. And a quick heads up, mate, a quick heads up, because I want our listeners to know, as I said on Friday, we are going to be in your podcast feed, as always, as usual, on Friday, even though... This Friday is Christmas Day. That's how much commitment we have. We're going to leave our families, go to a special undisclosed location. No, we're not. We're going to pre-record a podcast, but there will be one in your inbox as long as the gremlins don't uh, get to it first in your podcast feed on Friday morning. So Friday afternoon, I should say. So look out for that. By the time you've had uh, your fill of Christmas dinner and a couple of drinks, settle back by the I was gonna say by the fire. It's hopefully going to be warm where you are. So maybe on the deck or uh, maybe in your favorite chair with some breeze blowing past. And you will be able to access the most recent episode, a special episode of Monthly for Money. But, mate, we've got a podcast to get through before that. We've got a great question to start us off from Josh. Now, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but Josh asks, Hey, Scott, I'm back again, mate. That's all right, Josh. Thank you for coming back. It might be a fairly long-winded question. It's not, but the premise is somewhat simple. He says, I've got a question on lithium and the Australian companies that are big proponents of it. Mineral Resources, Gal- Galaxy Resources, Piedmont, etc." He says, I can't help but think that the future of the world, he says, within the next five to 10 years, will have heavily adopted autonomous vehicles. He does say, careful of mentioning Tesla around the dock. And I, well, you've done that for me. So Josh, it's your fault now. Uh, he says, so let me, we'll have, we will have heavily adopted autonomous vehicles due to sustainability and efficiency, etc. With lithium-ion batteries being a major component of this shift in societal driving norms, do you guys have any thoughts on the expectations or future of some of these companies or the industry itself that produced lithium. He says, I know Piedmont Lithium signed a deal with Tesla a couple of months ago, whereby they'll be supplying Elon Musk's company with, now I've never heard of this, Spodumene. Is that pronounced correctly? I have no Concentrate, idea. Concentrate, using lithium batteries. Anyway, he says, any thoughts will be appreciated. Cheers for the constant quality information you guys continue to produce. That's very kind. Thank you, Josh. Now, Doc, I want to ask you a couple of questions. I'm not going to ask Josh a direct question directly. Mm-hmm. You're you're a you're a EV kind of guy. You're a battery kind of guy. So we're 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 very lucky to have you here. I I want your thoughts. I want to give you to give me a probability, a couple of sentences as well, if you want to. What are the odds that we're not using lithium ion as a predominant battery technology in ten years' time? Well, of course, back in the day there was nickel cadmium batteries, and then I, I remember my first mobile phone had nickel metal hydride. I still remember that one. NIMH. Lithium ion is the key one here. So before we even get into the lithium opportunities for the likes of Tesla and others. What do you reckon is the probability that we've moved on to a new battery technology in, say, 10 years' time? Um, I, You know, I don't know the answer, but I'd, I'd say I would probably somewhere around 20% maybe. Oh, okay, that's low. Um, the, the thing is that lithium-ion could continue to be the main ingredient, right. but then you'd add, you know, other things into okay. it. So um, the science is relatively settled in terms of the main component in your view. Well, it seems like it right now, okay, at least. It seems like it that you know, uh, like so. Tesla's battery day didn't talk about none less. Of course, they, they might keep the the secret sauces. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't uh, have one, right? With this great new yeah. battery technology, we're not going to tell you about it. Just yeah, yet, we, you're not going to tell you about it. But, <laughs> but I mean, you know, the, the new battery technologies that they talked about seem to be still lithium-ion based, but okay, solving cool. solving some other problems that have not been solved in that space for a long time because okay. people thought it can't be solved. Okay. Um, and and I know that they have a, a one of the battery suppliers called uh, 
the China Aperture Cat CATL. I, I, I don't remember the full form. Mm. They have a battery which has iron content in it, right. and it has slightly different properties. For example, a lithium-ion battery you do not charge to 100% in an EV, but whereas an, it, which has iron in it, you actually yeah. charge that to 100%. Huh. Um, I imagine iron's going to be cheaper than lithium too, given the sheer yeah, size. So, so I think the, the Catal batteries are cheaper. Wow, okay. Um, and, and you know, some of the vehicles now use the Catal battery. But I mean, it's still, I think, lithium-ion uh, as the constituent uh, it's just you're replacing, you know, you know. Sometimes you have you have got, um, um, you know, nickel. Sometimes you've got cobalt. Yeah, right. Sometimes right. you've got, you know, various other things that you had. So I, I think lithium ion still remains um, the predominant okay. uh, technology, base technology, with other things being added. I can I like I know nothing about this, right? But if you'd ask me to say to, to hazard a guess. It's, it's rare that when someone says, hey, we're at the final technology for X that we actually are. I don't mean you personally here. I just mean generally speaking, you know, whatever it was, <laughs> film, photocopiers, um, cars, you know, I mean, to some degree, I guess internal corruption engines found their final technology in 1910 and really hasn't changed until EVs came along. So maybe that's maybe that's the counterpoint. But I don't know. I, just, I, I, would, have, I would have expected, again, I'm, I don't nothing, right? So I'm just, this is just me being a nuffy and, and speculating. But to, to imagine we are only, you know, we're kind of only what, 10 years in the real Tesla journey in terms of it being a serious car company and, and all, the, all the stuff it's bought to batteries. I just, I just would have expe- speculated there would have been another one or two generations of like, hey, we've discovered this new thing we're going to go and do to believe that in 2020 we've kind of found the end state for battery tech in terms of the chemistry. I just would have bet against it and, and obviously that would have made me wrong. <laughs> well, well, like, I mean, like, so lithium-ion battery, like, so I, I think the, the thing is, there's one thing to make the battery. There's another thing to make the pack. Then there's another thing to make the pack that works in different <laughs> right. ways, right? So I think that's where Tesla, Tesla is not necessarily making the battery. Yes, right? I mean, I mean, the lithium-ion battery has been around since, what, 1970s, right? right, right, right. Uh, and batteries has been around for, what, over 100 years probably, right? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, it's like basically saying, well, what's going to replace uh, I don't know the wheel. I mean, it's yeah. like the wheel. <laughs> it's <up on> <clears throat> well, yeah, hammer's been around for for centuries within its current form, right? I guess. Yeah. The, so when you find something good, you stick with it. You stick with it. I mean, maybe you're going to change. As I said, I think the constituents of the battery will change. Yeah. Um, proportions of different items will change. Yeah. I don't know. That's uh, that's what I, I mean. Fundamentally, I think if if we're going to have a different type of battery Mm -hmm. that's like you know people talk about hydrogen fuel cells and all these other things Uh, if they become then that's a battery technology change Mm -hmm. but I think if you're you're in this journey of you know using cells as we do then it seems to me that this is pretty settled there you go cool All right. so that that being settled thank you uh, for putting me me right Uh, next question then of course is looking at the lithium player So, so lithium ion remains the core technology for a decade plus Josh saying, okay, so he's got that bit right. He's now like, well, hang on. Given that he thinks there'll be many, many more batteries, many, many more EVs in the world in 10 years' time there are today, isn't it sensible or smart or at least a reasonable assumption to be going along some of these lithium providers and actually ride that wave as Tesla continues to demand more and more and more and other, other EV makers? I saw a Volkswagen, a little golf sort of size thing was being uh, written up today in the in the Herald, I think it was. Um Plenty of plenty of kind of you know would be EVs coming and and most companies saying they're at least going to be hybrid if not fully um, electric or renewable at some future point twenty twenty five twenty thirty is is the lithium trade a good one? Well, it's well so again it's a commodity right I mean so 
as the demand for lithium goes up, more lithium is going to be dug up from mm-hmm. the ground, and you know there's going to be you know as the demand goes up, there's going to be more supply, and then we're going to hit some equilibrium. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the equilibrium is for pricing, <laughs> but it's very difficult to have a pricing power in this industry, yeah. right? I mean, it's a commodity, so you're not going to have pricing power. The, the cheapest producer is the cheapest producer. That's number one, and and then the value basically creates. So there's more value going to be creating to um, the battery makers yep. so be, be it samsung or Catal or whoever panasonic then to the lithium producers who are basically producing the raw material yeah. right and even more to the ev makers. and then there's going to be even value. more right. to those people who are going to actually use it to produce something that people want right, right. because nobody we're not going to buy the batteries and keep them in our in our living rooms right that's not yeah. a good decoration to have yeah. so i i think the you know value accrues up up in the value chain and i think that's something to keep in mind Interesting, I like that one. I so, so me, uh, I'll answer my I'll answer similar to yours, and I'll actually pose you another question, a slightly different question, um, or a different perspective. Anyway, I think I agree. If you look at if you if we've been sitting here in 1905 and saying, you know what, in five years' time, internal combustion engines are going to revolutionise the world of transport, local, uh, international, regional, and there's going to be so many of these cars, and we're all going to burn petrol or diesel or gas, whatever version of it is, uh, all going ahead, going ahead. Um, I'm going to jump on this. The oil price now. It's forty-seven odd dollars a barrel. <laughs> More than a century later, despite the, I, I don't, the percentages must be in the millions of percents. I imagine in terms of the uptake of cars over that period, the compound, or not the compound, but the total, you know, number there would have been five cars, then twenty-five, then a hundred, then a thousand, then God knows how many million. Do you reckon there's billions of cars on the road? Probably not. Hundreds of millions anyway. Hundreds of millions for sure. Um, and and again, new cars every you know five or seven, eight, ten years. Um, if you if you'd explain that and the number of kilometers we're going to be travelling. You would have reasonably said, you know what, you've got to go long oil and hold oil forever and, and it'll be all fine. And that's, you know, I think that's demonstrably not true. Uh, the price of oil has hardly kept up with inflation, let alone anything more over the over a century. Um, air travel, I've used the example before, air travel's gone up probably 10,000 fold and yet airlines still go broke every second or third year because it's just, a, as you say, Doc, a commodity industry with way too much capacity. Let me be devil's advocate for a second though. I think you're, I'm going I'm to characterize your view as you think that, the uptake of EVs will increase at a faster rate than most people. And to the extent that's true, and to the extent that lithium is going to take years to be bought on board in any meaningful sense, if I if I had your view of, and not that I don't necessarily, necessarily I don't have a strong view, if I had your view that that uptake of EVs was going to be faster than anyone imagined, and yet there's only a small, reasonably small number of, of lithium producers currently, I, I could easily come to a view that there's going to be an imbalance of supply and demand for a decade or more because the amount of lithium actually being able to be extracted is going to be sucked up so quickly by battery makers. There's going to be a lot of money for lithium makers the next, or lithium miners in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Is it, not, is it not a reasonable view to look at that and say, hey, let's, let's jump on that? Long term, sure. Long term, lithium is like oil or air travel. But in the short term, it, uh, is it not possible that an absolute fortune is going to be made by a few miners who get to sell a remarkably rare in-demand commodity until that supply turns up? Um, yeah, possibly. I mean, I, I don't know that much about the the industry dynamics in, in the mining. But my understanding is that lithium is not that rare. Right. It's, it's available in plenty. And so therefore, uh, my understanding was that it can, you know, supply can actually ramp up mm. pretty quickly. Mm. Um, and again, the cheapest player kind of sort of is going to have an advantage. So... Yeah, like I don't, I don't, it just, again, it seems too hard. Again, it, you have to be a mining specialist mm. really to sort of understand the dynamics. Right. It just seems to me that, well, 
it's easier to sort of play the value accretes upstream than the value accretes downstream. I think that's yep. the, hard, the you know sometimes there's a hard way to make money, and then there's an easy way to make money. <laughs> Fair um, enough. I'm a capitalist. I want to make money. I just make money the easiest way. I, I just don't want to do it the hard way. Yep. You know, I leave the I hard stuff for that. other smarter people. I'm not that smart. I just make money easy way, and I stay quiet. <laughs> that's a good way to finish the answer to that question. I, I have as much. Charlie Munger would say, Josh, I have nothing to add. All right. Um, Let's get a question from Will. Good afternoon, Scott and Doc. One thing I have noticed is that for a question to make an appearance, a compliment and and positive reviews are required. So here goes. Don't be like that, Will. That being said, it doesn't hurt. He says, I have been only listening to the podcast for a short amount of time, but I've gone through almost a year's worth of content in the last three weeks. That is phenomenal. He says, uh, on the way to and from work, on walks, etc. Love the podcast and learning throughout the day. Will, that is is remarkable. I, I'm blown away, mate. Thank you for making the effort. I hope we've at least justified it. Now, I like this question, mate, because it's looking past the headline. He says, my question relates to zip pay. Quite often, the podcast touched on afterpay. In fact, we did that on only on Friday and how its future is amazing. But there's not much, if no discussion about zip. Being the second biggest player in this space and having landed the quad pay acquisition, enabling greater exposure throughout the US, all reports show tremendous growth, yet the share price stays stagnant and quite often, more than not, on positive news actually drops. What are your thoughts on this stock and its ability to bounce off its $6 mark on positive news? Thanks again from Will. Man, I love this question because often the opportunity can exist in the big front runner and certainly um, that's large, I think, often your approach and certainly David Gardner our, our, our co-founder and chief rule breaker at The Motley Fool has a, has a view about you know following the lead husky and, and wanting to back the leader in a space there's plenty of space behind the lead husky though for someone else to do reasonably well if, even if not better necessarily maybe better and certainly from a lower share price maybe there's just less hype in the share price and therefore more opportunity but when you think about afterpay and then zip maybe without, without, without doing the comparison just yet let's just, let's just take zip in isolation is it investable and why won't the market follow the good news with some sort of share price rise? Well, like I mean, it's investable uh, if you, again, so I think it's investable, depends on what you think about the valuation and depends on what you think about the growth opportunities. It's very much like many of these things tend to be duopolies, maybe oligopolies of, of some form because, you know, there's only so many different players you can have in in this sort of space so uh, i i think right, the reason i think okay so to answer the question i think the reason we at least i don't talk that much about zip is the there's a clear thought leader in terms of like, you know when, when people say um you know buy now pay later, actually people think after pay they do, right. right? Which is kind of the point, right? Well, you, when it becomes a, a yeah. verb or a noun or whatever it was, you, know, you Google something, you grab some Kleenex, yeah, I'm going to after pay it, right? Yeah, right. I'm going to after pay it. Right. So I think if that... Way, quickly, sorry, there's a company out there called Before Pay these days, which is literally reffing off its own competitor's name to produce another product specifically in reference to that. I mean, that's when, when even other companies are like, okay, well, we're kind of like that, but we're before. Their, their entire, I won't say their entire strategy, but a large part of their naming strategy seems clearly to me to be like, we're like them, but in a different in a different time frame. That, that's that's a pretty good compliment. Yeah, so so I think that's the reason we talk about Afterpay. You know, it's front and center in people's mind. And 
the the other thing to realize though is this is an intensely competitive yeah. environment yeah there are probably what a half a dozen uh, buy now pay later players listed in australia mm-hmm. there are a bunch of unlisted players right uh with big backings then there are players like you know other other online um payments providers who are in this game now so it is not really clear how the land is going to shake up so i think that that's and and maybe the market is basically just saying that well they don't know what to make mm. right so i mean it almost seems like if this industry is going to pan out the leader is going to be fine who's going to be number 2 and number 3 is 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 a big question mark right, at, right. The, at the moment right number 2 number 3 maybe number 4 and and you know again being invested on the number 2 at a good price can always be profitable mm-hmm. uh if you know if it's going to be number 2 mm. or even number 3 so i think those are the reasons i think uh, mm. you know there's always you know and again i'm not saying the market is right i'm just saying that yeah there's some yeah, yeah. rational explanation as to why the market is behaving the way it is yeah and if you have a different view that's an opportunity and you're on the market side of this one like Yeah, I I think this is very early stage. So it seems like if I have to back a player, I'm going to back after pay oh, the lead husky. Okay, right, right, right. Um, so almost because it's early stage, right? Cuz it's so early stage for everybody, the safer bet is the one that's leading the market. Yeah, the safer bet is leading the market, it's, it's growing, uh, you know, 100% plus. Mm-hmm. Um you know, doing really well in the US. Um so doing really well in the, in, a, in a very large uh, consumer market. So I I think all the signs point to that one doing well so so i think that matters yeah right and and that matters in it's funny enough right because this is really less about tech and more is about being a consumer discretionary or it's yes, actually yes, consumer yes. goods in many ways right? right right if a consumer has to feel the affinity yeah. and love towards the product <laughs> they actually have to because it's it's while it's lending yeah. it's actually a it's a consumer product. Yeah. Consumer has to adopt it mm. and have to be in love with it and feel that I'm going to after pay it. Yeah. Right? To me in my mind that's only one product that is there mm. and the mm. rest of the others are basically trying to get this. So. Yeah, that's fascinating. I like that a lot. Are you uh, are you expecting that one of these guys becomes the new normal in in, in kind of after payments <laughs> in in buy now pay later is 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 this the end game for payment? I was talking about a little bit with other other stuff with lithium ion batteries as well, but is this the final you know do, is is the winner going to make a lot of money it, it, or is it kind of you know does it win the race does it does it survive does it thrive or is this the proof of concept for sada new tech or, or or final winners that the JP Morgans or the Wells Fargo's or the Commonwealth Banks end up finding a way to win this race that, you know they let they let after pay prove the concept and then come and swoop in and, and take over the industry do you have a do you have a sense of that? Well, like I mean any other credit player could mm-hmm. get into this, you know, g- g- get into this game, right? Uh, often what happens is the industry incumbents are busy making money the way they currently make money, right? And yeah. then they they'll have a very hard time, mm-hmm. a difficult time switching over to a different way of making money because it, that means embracing losses early on, giving up on current profits. And nobody likes doing that. <laughs> right? That's This is point. why we actually yeah. have change yeah, is right, because exactly, people yeah. you know the reason change doesn't happen from within is because people yeah. and corporations and organizations because ultimately people actually do not like changing what they do yeah. but people love using yeah new things That's a great point isn't it? Right. So we all want new things yeah. but we don't want to change how we do things. 
as a dichotomy, right? And this yeah. is true for companies as well. It really, that's a fa- I mean, we talked about Kodak as well already on Friday. We've talked about plenty of companies. Um, you mentioned App- you mentioned App- Apple on Friday, I think it was. Amazon was the same. They literally sent the Kindle, I've said this before, they sent the Kindle business across the other side of the US just to make sure that it wasn't dragged down by the, what if we kill our, our physical book business? That, that, that broad idea of, you know, let's go and make something new and better. And, and it's, a, it's a bloody hard thing to do. I think we take it for granted, the, you know, the iPhone destroying the iPod or the Kindle, not necessarily destroying physical books in the end, but, but being a reasonable competitor that didn't have to, you know, it wasn't either or conversation. You could actually have both businesses and let the consumer effectively decide. Um, it's a really, really hard thing to do. It's, 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 uh, it, and, and I've got to say, I mean, I've been for organizing organizations that are super young and super old. I mean, you know, the Motley Fool had been in Australia for about three months when I joined and I've been for, worked for other businesses that were a century old and the, the, the calcification that we can't do that here, we're not geared up for it. How do we make money doing it? The institutional imperative gets really, really, really strong and it's no surprise that businesses get bypassed because they're so busy doing business the way they've always done business because that's always worked. The time it stops working, it's kind of too late to, to kind of make that change, right? And it's it's also difficult the other way around. I guess, you know, existing businesses can't afford to, you know, so many new businesses fail. If existing businesses try to do every piece of new innovation that everyone else did, they go broke before they manage to find success anyway. It's a, I mean, I'm, I'm not, no, no one's going to cry any tears for these guys that are, you know, billion dollar companies that might be at risk. But what do you do, right? You can't, you can't chase every new innovation, you go broke trying. And you can't afford to avoid you can't afford to avoid innovation because you get lapped by someone else who says, "Here's a better way. I'm coming through here." Think about bookstores or, or you know, music retailers. I, it, I, again, I don't even know if I have a question here, but it, do you have a view as to how an existing oldish business does this? Do they do they simply do what some other companies do, which is buy the innovation when it's big enough to matter, or do they? How how would you if you're running a 50, 60 year old business? What would you do to to not bleed cash chasing every new innovation, but make sure you didn't get lapped by someone else? Well, I think acquisitions, like, you know, uh, you know, acquiring talent and sort of allowing the talent flow mm-hmm. to impact decisions, I think is, is critical. I, I think, like, calcification at some point is unavoidable mm. because, again, that's what, you, at some point you become blinded, right, by what you are currently doing. That's what you do. That becomes the culture. And yeah, right. It is to some extent, unavoidable. At some point, the growth is going to slow. People don't like working in slow-growing companies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, like being vigilant, being you know willing to change. I, I think, interesting or not, I think um, certain industries change slowly and, mm. and those are hard ones. So finance, it changes slowly, right? Um, and that allows um, companies from the outside to disrupt it because the inside players change slowly. Right, right? Right. So I, I think that, that there's a lot of interesting dynamics here. I, I don't have a good again, answer for this, but and yeah, if I had a solution, I would be. Uh, I, I would be. <laughs> You're in those businesses. I, I would it, be. Well, I would be consulting and making more money. It, it is. I mean, we have plenty. Of, one of my very very favorite business books is Good to Great, and even some of those businesses that were featured subsequently went bad. You know, the the ability for a business to to rise to the top and stay there is is a remarkable skill. And frankly, not a small amount of luck that you know very few companies manage to do and do consistently and consistently well. There is something very specific and special about a company that can that can manage to do it. Mate, um, let's move on to another question. We had a question this time from Carl. Now, this is not your necessarily area of key interest or expertise, but let's let's assume that you can, we can get you slightly interested. Carl says, "Hey Scott, I have a question for you and Doc for the podcast." 
It regards Ben Graham's book, The Intelligent Investor. Now, it's a quick side note. If you're thinking, Ben Graham, I know that name from somewhere. Ben Graham was a lecturer and academic who went on to become a fund manager. But while he was leading, while he was doing his, his um, lecturing, he lectured a young bloke by the name of Warren Buffett who went on to be kind of a big deal. And so uh, Ben Graham's book is, is famous partly because Graham was the first person to really codify investing. He, to some degree, you know, he, he was a real leading light. And, and frankly, things have moved on. But he was the first guy to get any public acclaim and notice as the, someone who said, here is how investing should be done. And it was a reasonably young, I want to say the 1930s, maybe even the 20s, he wrote this book. Um, you know, he, he was the first guy to really put this stuff in print. So here's a, here's a framework for thinking about how to invest. Now, there's many, many more. His own from it's kind of been bypassed by circumstance. But in any case, um, that book was was monumentally impactful on Warren Buffett. And of course, uh, Buffett went on to work for Ben Graham and do other things. Anyway, Carl says, I'm not the typical Graham fan. So there you go, Doc, one like you. He said, I have a much higher tolerance for risk. I would, I would argue that Graham took different amounts of risk. That's a whole different theoretical discussion that we don't need to go into here. Yeah, I appreciate some of his views, Carl says, but I am wondering how relevant in general you believe his opinions are in this modern world. Regards, Carl. P.S. Get Doc on the talk. Mate, you're going to have to join TikTok at some point. Then your fans your fans are demanding it. They're missing you. I think so. Well, we'll, we'll think about that. You're going to have, I, th- I think at some point you're going to, 2021 could be your year, mate. Could be. It could yeah. be your year for TikTok. TikTok dances. I'm, I'm seeing it in your future. The finance TikTok. <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I still am not on TikTok, uh, despite our, our correspondent last week suggesting we should. We still haven't done that. But maybe 2021 is your year, mate. All right. So Carl asks the question. Um, now, the Intelligent Investor, as I said, super, super impactful book. I've read, I think I've got a, I've got one on the shelf behind me. I normally have one around. Yeah, I do. There you go. It's got a blue and silver spine sitting right behind me at the desk here. Um, I, I have to, I haven't cracked it for a while, which maybe is, is partly Carl's point. Um, I'm going to ask you, mate, to, to try desperately to be to be level headed here and give Ben Graham some sort of positive feedback. Don't just dismiss him entirely. Um, is there anything in your investing, in your formative years, in your approach to investing, or even even if you don't do it, you see others do, that you would say is valuable or useful or still relevant for the world today? Well, look, I, I mean, I read that book. Um, oh, did it, you really? I did. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, I, I've read all that. You know, I find that you need to read a lot of different things to have have a view, right? I mean, yeah. you can't have a view without totally reading might. it, so you have to yep. read it. Uh, and so, I mean, it's it's foundational, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it tells you what a P is, what's an E is, uh, oh, you know, right. what's a balance sheet, why do you pay attention to this? <laughs> Excuse me. So it's, it's relevant from all of, uh, I think, from a fundamentals point of view. I think where I think it starts breaking down is mm-hmm. I think you know, how it thinks about P being the only sort of focus, yeah. for inv- which I, I think we need to remember the time, right? This was before mm. things were mm. codified into a computer. This yeah. was before, uh, you know, I, I don't think at that time, you know, mm-hmm. did shares trade all the time or there were only specific times at which you got certain prices and prices only moved in certain increments and things like that. So a lot of the stuff that they talk about is it's pretty dated from that that point of view yeah yeah and and much of that has been supplanted by i mean you know right now one of the best ways to miss out on good investing is actually looking at the pe <laughs> uh, yeah, right. you know because you right. know some of the best businesses will actually have very high pe but that nearly i mean in many ways pe is actually 
not useful when you're looking at you know many high growth businesses they don't have an e so how do you have even a p and if it has a p it's probably some exorbitant number which doesn't mean anything <laughs> um so i i think again but i think it's a foundational book it's good it's yeah. a good foundational book to read and it also gives us history and context i think that those two things are useful because again you want to understand what happened in the past mm. doesn't necessarily tell you what's going to happen in the future but it gives you good reference and it tells you it tells you how it also tells you a little bit about investor psychology right a lot of people mm-hmm. still invest like that yep and you can you can be cynical about it or you can say that's an opportunity mm-hmm. right um so things like that i think but i, I like it a, i like it i um i think like so here's i think this is interesting because the the opportunity for gains are always a function of what happens in the future, right? By definition, that sounds obvious, but but it's kind of important because, you know, Graham was taking what he would consider much less risk, and in part because he could. I'm not entirely convinced that the growth investors of say, maybe even you, Doc, maybe even you, if we were now in 1920, or if the 1920 conditions applied today, if we could get really, really low risk market thrashing gains by just buying companies that were Graham-style companies, I reckon we'd probably do it, right? Because just there's no need. You talk about like you know hard things and, and easy things. If we if we could buy stocks based on the PE that were just stupidly stupidly cheap, or or buy stocks that were like you know hundred dollar hundred dollar notes trading for fifty bucks. If you literally someone walked up and said, "Do you want a, do you want a hundred dollar note fifty dollars?" I, I think you'd be not you personally, but we'd all be crazy to say, "No, no, thank you. I'd rather I'd rather go and try and you know turn two hundred dollars over here at the casino." You go, "Well, of course I will." If, if you give me an, an easy, so you know, the net net approach of, of Ben Graham was literally saying, "Hey, let me look at the balance sheet of these companies. There's eighty bucks worth of assets. I'm being I can buy them for forty dollars. Do I want to do it? Yeah, yes. Every day of the week, I want to do that." And that was kind of his approach. And I think to some degree, as you said, mate, that the circumstances have changed and the the opportunities don't exist anymore for Graham type success. And I think. That probably means, you know, Graham was shooting fish in a barrel to some degree. It was, it was too easy not to make money. Given no one else was doing this, he's like, hey, here's a really cool idea. Here's something no one else is doing. I can do that and be successful doing it for a very long time. And it was a, it was a three or four decade, I think, um, story. And eventually, by the way, it started to go away because more people caught on. And this is the other problem is once everyone else catches on, the opportunity is no longer there. And that's kind of what I mean about it depends what happens in the future. Today, we've got to buy companies. I want to say got to. I think, you, Doc, you quite enjoy it and are happy to. But to some degree, we have to buy companies with more, I want to say speculation, that seems too reckless. But we have to kind of try and project more into the future. We can't just say, well, I'm going to buy a dollar for, for you know, 80 cents. We've got to say, I'm going to buy a dollar for a dollar and hope it's worth two at some point in the future. That is by definition more risky. Now, there are plenty of opportunities to do that. And most of investing over the last 30, 40 years is about trying to codify better or different ways of doing exactly that. Um, the opportunities will probably existed during Ben Graham's time to be a growth investor, but there was no need to because it was you know too easy not to. These days, I think you kind of have to take that view of saying, well, okay, if, if this business doesn't grow, I don't make any money. I have to try and find the ones that I think will grow. I have to pay a reasonable price for that growth and I have to do it in a portfolio approach so when I'm wrong, I'm not taken to the cleaners. By the way, that's what I mean about Graham. So Graham took... Graham bought hundreds of companies and just took this relatively mechanical approach. He bought everything that had a, a you know, a, a value, uh, a physical value that was simply higher than the current share price. He bought all of them. He, bought, he had hundreds of companies in his portfolio at different times um, because it was a very mechanical approach of basically exploiting market inefficiency. And I think that's that that's still idea. That's maybe that's the big Graham lesson is right. Exploiting market inefficiency is looking for areas 
where we have an edge or where the market is simply inefficient or not recognizing the value that we think we see. His was easy because it was a real value. It was dollar, you know, black and white dollar value. But we're all trying to buy it. We dock the, the, we're trying to find the value that doesn't otherwise exist. So I think that's that's my broad answer. What I would say, Carl, to, specifically to your to your question, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the old appeal to authority here and just simply quote Warren Buffett because it's interesting that um, even as as Buffett himself has evolved as an investor and hasn't got to growth investor style or pure growth investor style, but he has evolved over time. Uh, Buffett specifically talks about two chapters of the Intelligent Investor. If you hear him talk about it, he will mention chapter eight and chapter twenty. And those, just very quickly, chapter eight is titled The Investor and Market Fluctuations, which we talk about all the time here. Again, it's thinking about the crowd and how you respond to where share prices are, what the market's expecting, and be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. That's all that. And chapter 20 is margin of safety as the central concept of investment. And that's just making sure you're not taking so much risk. You don't leave room for upside. Doc talked before about total market opportunity. If you buy a company at a cheap enough price and the market opportunity is hundreds or thousands of times larger, that's a pretty good margin of safety, right? You've got plenty of opportunity to be wrong on the price because you've got so much potential growth that you don't need to be right in the dollars and cents. Other people will say, well, I'm not going for that growth, but I'll only buy Telstra or CBA or something else when the share price is is low enough because you're not, you're not going to make it up on growth. You have to make it up on valuation. But either way, making sure when you buy, you have a reasonable suspicion that the odds are in your favor for whatever reason. That odds in your favor is largely a, a corollary to some degree, sorry, an analogy, sorry, I should say, to some degree for the idea of margin of safety. Making sure the price you pay is so low relative to the upside or the, or the future value that you're covering yourself for the potential that you're frankly wrong from time to time. Um, I think Buffett would also probably talk about portfolios if I was going to go down that path. But from, a, from Graham's perspective, from the intelligent investor, chapters eight and 20 are the ones he talks about all the time. And they're the ones I think he would say are the ones that are most worth reading from the book these days. Any more on that, Doc? I have nothing to add to that. Beautiful. There you go. That was a good answer. Thanks for that. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Um, question from Carl. Oh, sorry, not Carl. We just answered Carl's question from Joseph. All right. He says, G'day, Scott and Anirban. Love the pod and happy foolish. Uh, happy foolish for years up in the States as well as alongside fellow members of Extreme Opportunity Investors. I'm not sure what he's saying. I think he's saying he's been a fool for years, I assume. Uh, maybe he's been happily foolish for years. There you go, up in the States, as well as alongside fellow members of Extreme Opportunities. That's people. That's your people, Doc. Mm-hmm. He's one of your people, Joseph. All right, he says, now I may be really foolish with a small f with this question. I don't think so, but here we go. He says, I'm either an idiot or not with this thought about the difference between equal and market cap-weighted indices. Now, we talked about this last week, and we kind of talked about the idea of buying a market cap-weighted index. In other words, the way the ASX 200 is done by... You know, BHP is a larger company than, hit me with one, something, something, something. Uh, BHP is larger than, I don't know, um, let's say. Um, Coca-Cola Amatol. It's the first I can come up with. Coke's in front of me. You got a better one? Um, Altium. Altium, there we go. And so, it, yeah, when BHP moves 1%, it has a bigger impact on the market than if Altium moves 1%, right? That's what's supposed to happen. It's simply a larger company, so it's a higher, bigger weight in terms of the index and the way we measure it. Anyway. He says, um, I'm either an idiot or not with this thought, so I apologize if I prove to be wasting your time, but here goes. You won't be. He says, consider what would have happened over the past decade with the S&P 500 index if each quarter saw the FANG stocks rising in value at, at times, astronomical rates. An equally weighted index fund would not be buying these companies, but would instead would be selling them because they would be overweight and then buying the bottom performing 75 in high quantities. And the middle 24.9% in elevated quantities just give up with the value of the top 0.1% that 
that were really firing at all cylinders. So let's just break that down. It's effectively what he's saying is, look, if everything's going to be equal weighted, let's say 100 companies, 1% each, if one of those companies like the Fang stocks doubled or tripled, you'd be selling those down. And if something halved, you'd be buying more of it. So in other words, you kind of, to use the expression that David Gardner has popularized, I, I don't know if it's his directly initially, but you would be effectively watering the weeds and pulling the flowers. You're, you're selling off the success and you're buying more of the failures. So that's, that's not uh, Joseph's my words. Anyway, back to Joseph. He says, I'm afraid the laws of supply and demand would be in effect in each quarter, pushing back down the stock prices of the quarter's winners because that's selling. The result will be a lagging S&P index over time. And here's the kicker artificially inflated prices of last generation's large cap companies at the expense of the next generations. What do you think? So I love this question, Joseph. I will say for what it's worth, I'm not too worried about the index buying and selling over time because the other 89 days of the quarter, um, the, the market will work out what it thinks that the, the shares are worth. So a little bit, I mean, if indexes were 95% of the market, we'd have a bigger issue. I don't really think I mean, there's businesses, there's funds and, and ETFs rebalancing all the time. So I don't think the rebalancing is necessarily problematic. Personally, Doc, you may disagree. What I do, I think, is an interesting idea, interesting concept, is the idea of selling the winners and buying more of the losers, leading to the equal weight index underperforming. What do you reckon? Um, well, yes, I agree with you on the first point, and the second. I mean, I mean, the fundamental, the. I think the fundamental assumption for that to be true, uh, like re- regarding selling winners and, and buying losers, would the assumption there is that the the bottom end of the S and P five hundred is not increasing, right? Right. So we don't know whether that's true or not. <laughs> so even in relative terms, though, if you had to, if if nothing else happened but the the fast growing companies increased, you would still have to sell some of those and buy more of the others to rebalance everything out. So you'd always be adding to the lower performers, even if they were not going backwards. Not not necessarily, right? So I mean, one of the largest winners over the last ten years would be something like say Netflix, right? Yep. But it was not in the top ten for most for the better part, correct, correct, correct. right? So I mean, equal weighting actually would help you in in get a larger weight on that. Correct. So I don't know. There are examples on both sides. Yes, yes. That's so right. it depends. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually looking at the equal weight are. Um, ETF is called. Um, I have tried to do research. It makes me look bad. Yeah. Well, it's called Invesco S and P Equal Weight. <laughs> right. I was looking at uh, last five years, and this is without dividends. So okay. let's say five years, the price was seventy four eighty one USD. <laughs> now it's one twenty six eighty nine. Okay. So it's a you so know, two thirds, sixty six percent increase, give or take. Yeah, in five years, right? Okay. Uh, and then um, this is live research here, folks. Yeah, you are, SPY, you are seeing the sausage being made right now. And SPY five yep. years. Well, SPY has gone from 200 to 369. There you go. So it's outperformed. Which one has outperformed? The 200 from the sound of it. It's gone closer to doubling. The other one's about 66%. Well, that that's fair? also closer to doubling. I mean, it's gone from much like... Much much they, I think they're both very All similar. Right. <laughs> in, in the similar ballpark, yeah. it's neither here nor there. And, and that's because <laughs> probably, you know, uh, they're, they're, you know, some things have washed out some other things. Yeah. Which, which, which to some degree actually makes the point that maybe it doesn't matter either way. Um, Joseph, I, I think your concept is right. I think to Doc's point, it depends. I think it depends on where we're at, right? I think now the fangs are already huge. If they keep growing at a decent rate, you are going to underperform with an equal weight index. Because if you've got the biggest companies growing faster, they would have a, a larger impact on compound impact on a, on a market cap weighted ETF. 
So it's kind of depends on where we are in the market's evolution, right? I think, you know, we've talked about this before, even with the, like I think with the Australian market, for example, equal weight would likely outperform for the next little while because I don't expect the top 20 or 50 companies that are massively overrepresented and overweighted. If they don't grow as fast as the rest of the market, then you are going to get more value while the other guys are smaller. So if I can get an Altium to Doc's example, notwithstanding the fact that we talked about Friday, the fact that it's struggling to grow as much as it has in the past, if it can grow just faster to some degree than the banks, you want equal weight rather than rather than market cap weighted, right? Because you want more of the growing stuff and less of the ungrowing stuff. At some point, if we get to some future time when Altium and Afterpay and Zero and I don't know the rest of the wax stocks are in the top twenty, then you probably want market cap weighted because at that point the faster growers, assuming they're still growing, you want them to have a larger impact on the market. So I think it depends, and this is why I have a little bit of issue with ETFs that, that people, you know, the old index fund that was purely passive. Versus, hey, what if we try and be strategic and add some value to this and buy some of this and some of that? Because it kind of, it, I don't have a problem with doing it. It just it stops being passive and becomes active. And you have to have a really good sense, as you say, Joseph, very rightly, you have to ask that question of yourself and, and your analysis and say, why do I think an equal ETF might win? Where are we in the market? How's the market valued? What are the biggest companies doing or not doing? Who's growing faster? And I think in that scenario, you do to some degree, um, uh, you become an active investor at some point. And I, and I have to say, from that perspective, you either want to be active in other words pick your own stocks or at least pick your pick you know active ETFs that it might be in areas or, or sectors or industries that you like if you want to be passive I, I personally my, my bias is just to say hey buy the index in in, in equal in market weight sorry uh, because you're getting the sum total of the stock market's gains which over the centuries have been fantastic now maybe someone else could reweight this and and look at it maybe equal weight does beat the the market weight over 50 or 80 years and I might have to agree to change my view but generally speaking if you want to be passive, buy the market in proportions of the market, hold on for the very long term. If you want to be active, then I think that's a very different thing. And I have no problem with equal weight if you believe that's going to win. And it may well in Australia, for example, um, is my best guess. But you kind of start becoming active. And at some point, you might as well say, well, if I'm going to do that, I might as well buy the small companies instead. Why buy the ETF? If I think the small one's going to go faster than the banks, don't buy the ETF because you get the banks. Buy, buy the other stuff. So a bit of a bit of a double double question, but you're right, Joseph. In certain circumstances, you are dead right. It's absolutely possible that you end up getting a subpar return because of the sizing uh, and the and the relative sizing of the fastest growing companies. Doc, you have any more thoughts on that? No, I think that's a pretty comprehensive answer. Beautiful. Well done. Thank you, mate. Let's go to a question from Sparky. He says, "Maybe you can use my Twitter name." So we are Sparky. I like Sparky. All right. Now here you go, mate. So so, so we both get something out of this one. Uh, Sparky says, hello, RBA governor candidate, Dr. Mahanti and Presidente Scott. So we both get some area of responsibility. You're in charge of monetary policy. I'm in charge of fiscal policy. Have a look at it. After World War I and Spanish flu, he says, they called it the Roaring Twenties. Yes, you can have 20s music played in your minds due to the legal rights. I understand you can't play it. That's true, Sparky, also because I'm nowhere near sophisticated enough to uh, actually put the music on. So uh, let's shoot this 20s music in the background. Set, set the mood. Theatre of the mind. Imagine some 1920s roaring, you know, the, the flappers and the, the big jazz bands and all that kind of stuff going on while we, while we talk about this question. All right. He says, now in the 2020s after COVID, are there opportunities for certain companies to excel and certain beaten down stocks to buy? Now, we have talked about recovery stocks on Friday, mate. This is kind of that area, but maybe there are opportunities that you, as you mentioned, the Starbucks of the world or others. So Sparky says, what are your thoughts on certain stocks or industries to watch out for? tech, maybe companies like Brainchip or Tesserent, or construction renewable energy companies, as what governments do best to create jobs are infrastructure spending. So maybe companies like APA Group or New Energy Solar. He says maybe REITs in commercial warehouses or maybe consumer staple stocks like BWP or Goodman, or am I too late? 
as most stocks have recovered or back to almost March levels. I love your rants, he says. You're a strange and interesting man in need of serious help, Sparky. I love your rants and good to think in a different opinion. However, sometimes I don't understand when Doc says, if I was the governor, then says, I hate policies. <laughs> he says, this is not a stock recommendation, just your thoughts. I think he's uh, riffing on our, our inability to give personal advice. So thank you, Sparky. I love that. That's a full question, Doc. Lots of, lots of references to past podcasts, which we love. Lots of new titles for you and I, not new jobs, new pay packets, hopefully that come with them. Uh, in the meantime, so we don't, you don't do recovery plays, Doc, but are there businesses that are worth buying because of, or as we come out of COVID, that have particularly caught your eye, particularly industries, sectors, companies, industries? How do you think about opportunities that, that exist or have propped up post-COVID? So I think there's some things to think about. So I think digital is... Um, is definitely something to pay attention. So one of the things that 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 COVID has done is has accelerated the pace of change and right. adoption of digital technologies, be it in the cloud, uh, be it modernizing uh, tech that was being used. So that, I think that creates a lot of opportunities for the right tech players. Mm. Um, so I think you need to look for those tech players and focus on you should be able to see that uh, in their growth and 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 by in their growth by you should be able to see that in their sales growth right so yeah. if the sales growth is it's going to come in the future many years from now uh that's that's hogwash to some extent <laughs> if the sales growth is there if during the pandemic they were seeing increased sales growth that's a very yeah. good sign that again you need to dissociate temporary effects from mm. more likely permanent effects but I mean I think that's something to uh, keep in mind um, I like that idea yeah and so, so I think that related to technology I think people should really think about um, you know healthcare and telehealth mm. there's a big opportunity I think there uh, for massive transformation this is like trillions of dollars of transformation that can happen multiple players can win uh, depends on how different players play so I think that's another one mm. to think about again this digital transformation um, there's uh, consumer stocks just talking about like companies like you know um, I guess BWP and things like that well you know, so BWP is the old Bunnings Warehouse yeah. Property Trust so some maybe consumer focused REITs that are REITs. in attractive areas Again, okay, I mean, I don't know. That's not a sector I play in. I mean, if you're, if you're a yield-focused investor, maybe you've got to still pay the right price and not overpay. Yeah. Um, I, I do think there is an opportunity actually in infra. Um, okay. Because it's unlike you. Well, I, I think it's an opportunity largely because I think at some point, mm. like, I mean, right now the government is doing stimulus via, well, I'm going to give people free money. <laughs> Yes, and at some point well, you yeah, realize hundred billion dollars worth of it. Yes, yeah. Well, at some point the government will realize, well, free money mm-hmm. is only going to temporarily help us. In fact, it might make people <laughs> feel like, well, if we just get free money, why do we need to work? Right? <laughs> so then the government might realize, okay, maybe I should just build something because this is, a, you know, government realize things is things over time, and and you know, let, let me build a new port, a new airport, new roads, new rail lines, or whatever, new high rises. So there might be an opportunity there. I, again, I, I don't know. I don't. I think there's going to be a lot of this infra building not just mm. here but mm. over you know new yeah. schools new hospitals so again maybe there's an opportunity there uh, it's not my thing so but i do mm. think that, that may happen um toll roads and things like that um yeah so again many ways to win i think i like that man i like the idea i 
It's a really, look, the first thing I would say, and this is not, I feel, I feel a bit bad, Sparky, but um, we've been banging the drum for months, right, on on buying stocks while the market was low. And the I, we talked about Warren Buffett a bit just before. The great One of the greatest quotes from Buffett is, you pay a high price in the stock market for a cheery consensus. And that is, people are now looking for recovery stocks because the recovery's here. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, thank goodness, it's safe to go and buy stocks again. The market is pretty much back at levels that we started the year at. And so to, to the extent that, yes, there's still more to go to get back to the February high. So I guess if you want to look at it that way, there's still opportunity. And I, by the way, we would say, you know, almost always keep buying stocks, just find the best stocks you can and let them do their thing. So I don't want to dissuade anybody from buying. But the recovery trade is kind of, you need to do it before the recovery turns up. And I don't mean that uh, condescendingly or, or rudely or even, you know, uh, fictitiously or facetiously, sorry, I should say not fictitiously, facetiously. I just mean that there's that, you know, the, I hope the lesson, I think I said this last week, Doc, the, I hope the lesson that our listeners get from this is next time we have one of these, you're prepared to jump in earlier, not not bleeding edge earlier, not just trying to pick the bottom, just because once the market's crashed, that's often always. I mean, if you bought at the bottom of the 87 crash, the bottom of the GFC, the bottom of the uh, of the COVID crash, or even three months later, you still had a lot of money. You didn't have to be there at the very bottom. But equally, once the good news was back, most of the easier gains were gone. You know, it's always easy to say the easy money's been made and markets keep going up. So keep investing by all means. But investing in the recovery now, it's probably a little bit too late. So don't don't chase those ones. Um, you're right, the price is, is pretty much back up. Um, but hopefully the lesson for next time is, is that's an opportunity. To Doc's point, I think, you know, talk about digital, I think that's a really important one. The change, the things that have changed. Now, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about change, generally speaking. I think we assume too much. Um, single example, hopefully not cherry picked, but I used to be in the, I used to work for food companies back in my previous career. And the organic trend has been going to take over the world for, Doc, I want to say at this point, probably close to 30 years, 25 years at least. I talk about organic food being the new thing in 1995, right? And to some degree, it's grown a little bit. And yes, there is whole foods. And yes, there is more interest and involvement, engagement with organic foods. And that's kind of true. But you haven't seen, you know, <laughs> the big guys go broke anytime soon or in the, in the past. I think it's going to happen anytime soon. And the organic guys, I mean, Macro, that's now Woolworths brand, was a standalone store at one point. It folded. Um, I don't know, I'm, not, I'm not disputing. Go for organic if you want to, but I only eat it. Um, we make our own bread at home. It's kind of, it's great. I love it. But just because a possible trend, you know, oh, organic's coming, I'm going to get ahead of the curve. You spent 25 years being ahead of that particular curve. So just be careful that you don't overstate. As Doc said, and I think this is really important, Doc, you made this point. I was going to mention it, but I'll, I'll do it now. Um, you know, you're a growth investor, but you're not a you're not a daydream investor. You're not a, someone who's like, well, this could be possible, and you know, if and when man goes to Mars, I'm going to buy Mars stocks because it might happen at some point. You, you just said it in your answer, you're looking for sales growth. You know, you don't need profits necessarily right now. Often you don't need profits, and, and you get better prices when there's no profits because most of the crowd aren't paying attention yet. But you, you're you're getting something concrete. You're getting evidence of business success, not just jumping at whatever might happen. So by all means, look at those changes, and by all means, as Doc said. Be careful they're not temporary one-off changes. The fact that Harvey Norman had great sales during March, April, May is great for Harvey Norman, great for shareholders. Next year, I dare say the sales will be down year on year because you can't repeat the demand growth of a pandemic. And once everyone's already bought a chest freezer and a second TV, there's only so many more you can sell. So be very careful of temporary stuff. But if there are genuine changes to the way we go about life, and they are to some degree built in and, and permanent, you can see evidence of that permanency as life goes back to normal, then there might be some opportunities there Broadly, Doc, I think, honestly, I'd, I'd be kind of just buying the stuff that is successful regardless, right? It's kind of how we how we opened 
Friday's podcast actually we're talking about you know does the economy really matter for the most part businesses that are you know it may have sped up some things Shopify the the kind of website company talks about the fact that it's 2030 plans are being put in place in 2020 because life just sped up and people went online and stuff happened and that's that's real be, be careful be, be aware of that internet online commerce penetration flew through the roof in you know January through March went from 15% to 33% something like that um, from a McKinsey study the study that we saw a few months back um, so there are things that have meaningfully changed and by all means stick with that but Generally speaking, buy great companies doing good things with bright futures. I wouldn't try desperately to buy recovery stocks per se just because they're recovery stocks. Um, buy out of favor, great companies if you can find them by all means and buy them at cheap price if you get them. But I wouldn't be too desperate to chase recovery stocks, which is almost an echo of our, of our Friday conversation, Doc, at the expense of just buying great companies because you know when the recovery is over, as Doc said on Friday, you've got to get in, you've got to get out, you've got to pay the right price, you've got to pay your tax. If you can find a business that's going to be 10 times the size at some point in the next decade, I would buy that regardless of you know whether or not it benefited for or frankly was hurt by COVID and regardless of what sort of recovery it's going to have. I mean, I can't have a good company that sort of you know got killed and hasn't come back yet, but it's a long-term future, but I dare say they're out there. So um, buy, buy businesses with great long-term futures. I think I would argue to the exclusion of trying to be too clever about recovery stocks. Is that fair, Doc? I think it's very fair. Mate, I want people to send us some questions. We've got a busy couple of weeks coming up. We're going to pre-record some episodes, as I've already mentioned, including this Friday. We're going to have some mailbag episodes over the next couple of weeks, and we're not going to be here for them, <laughs> or at least we're going to record them in advance. So firstly, here's a great chance to have your question answered. Secondly, here's a threat. If you don't send us some good questions, there won't be an episode because Doc and I, well, we can make up some questions, but not enough. So if you want to keep your earbuds pleased, if you want to keep your brain stimulated, if you want to hear some foolish thoughts and insights into how to invest, what to invest in, how to think about investing, how to think about business, all that cool stuff. We want to talk about it, but we want to know what you want to hear. So please, please, please hit us up on the socials on our email. So we've got stuff to talk about. Yes, we are asking you to help crowdsource our program, but I figure because it's free, that's only a fair deal. So hit us up. Info at fool.com.au is our email address. I-N-F-O, very complex. Uh, our member services, Fools, will look after that email address. We'll flick them on to us. They've already done that. We've got some in the hopper already, but we want some more. So please send them our way. If you're on the social medias, and you should be, Doc's going to be a TikTok in 2021. He's already promised that. So I'm looking forward to that one, Doc. Um, if you're on, well, if you're not on TikTok, don't do anything because we're not there yet. But if you're on Twitter, hit us up at Anirban Mahanti is Doc's handle. Mine is at TMF Scott P. And The Motley Fools is at The Motley Fool AU. We still haven't got Doc on Insta. Doc, will you go on Insta once uh, Facebook's forced to divest it? I'll consider. Oh, there you go. That's something. Oh, well, that might that might swing the judges in the case. If we say if we if the if we get the DOJ to say, look, Doc's not on Instagram, but he will be. If you guys break Facebook up, that might sway them. May, they might. Uh, well, how about they just pay me some money? <laughs> We're always up for being paid. Yeah. In the meantime, well, well, Doc's not on Insta, but you can get to me at TMF Scott P and The Motley Fool at The Motley Fool AU. And on Facebook, which I dare say Doc will never, ever be on, you can hit us up at the, the Motley Fool Australia is our handle for the corporate account. And Scott Phillips Money is my work page on Facebook. So please send us your questions, send us your comments, um, send us your jokes. If you've got a good joke, send us a joke. We always love, love a good joke. We, I don't think we'll have a joke segment regularly, but it's Christmas time. We're having a bit of levity, a bit of fun. So send us a joke if it's a good – keep it clean because, you know, this is a family-rated program. But if you've got a good joke, send us that one as well. I'm a um, big, big fan of some really bad dad jokes. So uh, I dare say you might even get a read if you do. So please do that. All right, mate, last question for today. And this one comes from Lachlan, very simple one. Hi, Scott and Doc. I'm a Motley Fool member and I was wondering, do you think it's worth holding on to shares in Slack? 
Now, Slack is the online work collaboration thing. I don't know. Does the sector have a name? The kind of is it workplace collaboration? Can we call it that? I think so. All right. So that's what Slack does. If you if you use it, you know what it is. If you don't use it, nah, I'm not sure those think you should think yourself lucky or not. But anyway, Slack is big and it's growing. It's also being bought out by Salesforce.com. So, is Salesforce.com probably Salesforce, isn't it? Is there a .com on the company name these days? Well, I still call it Salesforce.com. Okay, there you yeah. go. I feel, I feel better. If you call it that, I can call it that. Um, going to be bought out. They are going to give the potential, well, the, the, assuming the acquisition goes through, the current Slack shareholders get to either take, well, they don't think they have a choice, do they? They get some cash and they get some Salesforce shares. So if Lachlan sells his shares now, he can take the cash and do something else with it. Or he can keep his Slack shares, get acquired by Salesforce. He gets some Salesforce shares, some extra cash, so a bit of both. If you were a Slack shareholder doc, would you hang on and take the Salesforce shares or would you take the money and run and reinvest it somewhere else? Well, as I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Salesforce shareholder. <laughs> ah, there you go. Um, so that answers good, that. That's good advice. Um, yeah, like I, I really like Mark Benioff and I, I like what Salesforce does and I think it can be a much larger company in the future. It's, it's not... Look, it's it's a very large company. What it is about right. close to two hundred billion dollar market cap? Yeah. But you know, it wouldn't surprise me if it's one day a trillion dollar company. So, you know, uh, I just continue holding. Uh, again, it depends. Like, I mean, if you own Slack shares and you owned them because Slack was much smaller, mm. then you know, is this your cup of tea? I don't know. That that's something mm-hmm. you have to decide. Um, I never had Slack shares, so right. um, I don't have a view as such. But I think you know Slack would just do fine uh, under the Salesforce umbrella, like mm-hmm. just like many other businesses are under the Salesforce umbrella. Mm. So, yeah. Hang on, brother wife. Oh, I I am right. Anyway, I've I've held share Salesforce sh- shares for many many years. Nice. I continue to hold them, um, you know, and. Uh, Sometimes what happens is that, you know, see, this is a company that doesn't get the multiple you would think it should get. Mm. You know, it, it, it grows at 20, 25% plus its, uh, its sales. It generates plenty of free cash flow. Mm. Um, you know, it, 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 to me, relatively among, among sort of, uh, you know, the SaaS players, this looks relatively cheap. So, and, and it's a behemoth. It's not going to go away anywhere. It's, it's like, you know, deeply embedded mm. in, um, uh, in, in sort of the SaaS uh, world. So, I don't know. I, I really like SaaS, uh, Salesforce. There you go. Heard it straight from the doctor's mouth in this case. Fools, thank you for spending your Sunday afternoon with us. We really appreciate it. Or maybe Monday morning for listening to it on Monday morning or maybe Saturday if you're listening overseas in Europe. Anyway, thanks for spending an hour with us. We really appreciate it. And, of course, we will be back on Christmas Day with some special Christmas Day listening. Do us a favour, have a listen at some point, maybe Boxing Day, just before the test starts, you can put the podcast on, a bit of a warm-up, before you hear the dulcet tones of our new British cricket commentators, check out uh, the new updated version of Motley Fool Money. We've got an exciting episode coming up, something a little bit different, so stay tuned for that. I won't big it up too much, Doc, because if we disappoint people, it's not a good idea, so it's, it'll be okay, put it that way. All right, before we go, don't forget you can and should to make sure you get it on Christmas Day. Subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And of course, you can use Podcast One. We're a member of the family and it's a really cool app. If you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars would be lovely. Leave us a review, recommendation, tell your friends. Give it for Christmas. Make it a Christmas. Inside a Christmas card this year, just write. And an extra special free gift from me to you, I recommend you go to and just Google Motley Fool Money business podcast you'll find us and they can subscribe for free you're giving them the gift of financial literacy and education and a bit of fun is there anything better than that it costs you nothing how good is that as a present 
I think you should do it. All right, don't forget you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Christmas Day with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.